And these passages are from chapter 8. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, Don't even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Gary. Those of you who have been coming a while know that we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark. If you pick up a Bible, you'll notice that it comes in two big parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament and the New Testament are all about God, all about Jesus. The Old Testament looks forward to the coming of Jesus Christ the Messiah, and the New Testament tells us how that happened, what it looked like. It starts, the New Testament, with four Gospels, four recollections, four sets of stories about Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we're looking at Mark, and although it's called Mark, it is actually based on the memories and the stories that Peter, the apostle, remembered about Jesus. Mark is actually John Mark. He was one of uh, Peter's attendants and his personal writer. Peter himself was illiterate. He was a fisherman, never went to school. And so Mark is a particularly vivid set of remembrances, a great place to begin learning about Jesus. And although Peter was uh, a simple man in terms of his education, We see here, in in these set of stories that we're looking at right now, that he was a smart man because he gave his uh, gospel structure. We're in chapter 8 here. There are 16 chapters in the Gospel of Mark, so we're right in the middle. And this passage, particularly where Jesus is confessed as the Messiah by Peter, are really the center of this story. The first part of Mark's gospel is all about Jesus calling the disciples, revealing who he is through a set of miracles, and basically putting them through a boot camp, training them and teaching them. Here, we're in a section, uh, it goes from chapter 8 to chapter 10, bracketed by two miracles, Jesus healing a blind man. And it's all about Jesus revealing who he is. 
It's where Peter confesses him as a Messiah. It's where Jesus first mentions that he is going to die and be resurrected. It's where he first talks about the cross. It's where Jesus appears transfigured, that is glorified, and shows the disciples what it's going to look like after resurrection. So this is potent stuff. And after this section, Jesus launches himself and the disciples straight at Jerusalem. There are no more miracles. There's just an intense teaching as he journeys back to Jerusalem and to the cross. So let's have a look at it. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. So we've seen the whole first part of this gospel. Jesus is in the north of Israel, around the Sea of Galilee. And Bethsaida is the very northern tip of Galilee. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? Led him outside the village. This is not a public healing. This is not a public miracle. The primary audience are the disciples. And in fact, this is an unusual healing. You'll see that it's progressive. Jesus is teaching the disciples something. He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. He looked up. He saw. They looked like trees. The threefold repetition is stressing the fact that this is all about sight. It's all about bringing sight, revealing, showing the man something that he can see. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, don't even go into the village. Once more, this is the only time that Jesus just doesn't heal somebody. Usually he just has to say a word or touch somebody. But remember, this is a teaching as much as a healing. This is showing that sight, revelation are progressive. And notice once again the threefold repetition. Eyes opened, sight restored, he saw clearly. In, the Semitic, in Semitic literature, when you repeat something, it's a way of intensifying. You don't say, this is very good. You say, it is good, good. Repetition is a way of emphasizing that this is important. The threefold repetition is saying, this is the main point. This miracle, this section, is all about revelation, about seeing who Jesus really is, about making sense of the Christ. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? So Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi is actually just outside the most northern tip of Israel. So this is the most northern that Jesus ever goes. After this, he's going to go south to Jerusalem. And notice, on the way, he asked them. This phrase, on the way, from a Greek word, hodos, 
is something that is picked up by the Christian church. If you read the book of Acts, which is the history book of the Christian church that shows what happened after Jesus returned to God, the early Christians called themselves the way. They used this phrase. In fact, when I was a school kid back in England, uh, my physics teacher gave us all uh, a book called The Way. It was the Bible. And uh, we never heard anything else about it. I think probably he was disciplined for that. I don't know exactly what happened to him. But I had, as a kid, a book called The Way. And it's after this passage right here. And in fact, we will see in the next few chapters, Peter uses this phrase again and again. And it's not just the physical, geographical journey from the north of Israel to the south. The disciples are being discipled. The journey to Jerusalem is all about Jesus not doing public teaching, not doing public miracles, but focusing on the disciples and teaching them what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem and how to deal with the aftermath. In fact, this whole section, I would say, is all about what it means to be a disciple. Who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. One of the prophets, because it's easy to say that Jesus was a prophet or a teacher. Prophets and teachers have been around before. They're familiar, relatively unthreatening. To say anything else about Jesus is dangerous. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. The most dangerous question, who is Jesus? You can try to write him off, but if he really is the Messiah, if he really is God, then everything changes. We do not belong to ourselves anymore. There is a God who has entered our world and who is asking for our allegiance. C.S. Lewis wrote about this and the challenge of this question. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. This is from Mere Christianity where C.S. Lewis explains what Christianity is all about. The really foolish thing that people often say about him. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of thing Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him the Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not attend to. Who do you say that I am? 
it's the, the question that confronts every one of us. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? It is a personal question directed at each of us just as much as Peter. And our answer will shape the way that we live our life. It will change everything about us. It will change everything we think about our life, how we spend our time and energy, what we do with our money, how we raise our children, what we do with our careers. It changes everything. It is the center of the challenge of Jesus and the gospel. Who do you, who do I, say that Jesus is? By the way, Messiah is just the Hebrew form of Christ, which is Greek, which means literally the anointed one. That is the one who is anointed with God's power and comes in God's name, the one who in fact is God. This was what Jesus was crucified for. When he called himself the Christ, that's why uh, the Jewish leaders wanted him dead. On his cross, it said, King of the Jews. He was crucified because he was and claimed to be the anointed one. So what to think about this? Um, I was actually thinking about this a lot while I was away. I was reading... um, Peter's letters, and he talks about the road of discipleship that he went through and that every Christian goes through. Discipleship is the process, and remember, Jesus deliberately healed in stages to show that seeing who Christ is is progressive. It's not immediate. We all have our doubts, challenges, temptations. Discipleship is a journey. It is about learning on the journey who Jesus really is. And Peter wrote about it in his one of his letters, his second letter, and he said this. Jesus has given us everything we need for a godly life. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. So when when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, that statement of faith is not the end of his journey. It is the beginning of his journey. And everyone who would want to be or who seeks to be one of Christ's disciples is on a journey. Remember the slide that you saw, uh, the purpose statement of our church. In response to Jesus Christ's love, we seek to share his truth, serve our neighbors, but become his disciples. Learn to follow and trust and learn to grow. So I've been going through that list and thinking about where I am on that journey and what elements that Peter lists are actually part of my spiritual life, part of my existence. So I'm going to go through them with you, and as I do, think about where you are. Think about the ones that are harder. Think about the ones that you need to grow in. 
This, by the way, is uh, Second Peter, the first chapter. Add to your faith goodness. What is Peter talking about? Remember, faith is the beginning when you say Jesus is Lord. But we don't understand exactly what that means. We have to learn what that means. Goodness, the word itself means moral excellence, virtue, valor. It is used of God. It is used of Jesus. It's also the idea behind the medieval notion of uh, chivalry and knighthood. A noble knight was one who combined the virtues, the male virtues, of courage and fierceness, skill with arms, courage in battle. But combine that fierceness, that valor, with gentleness. Gentleness in relationship to family, in relationship to women, to children. Somebody who was cultured. Somebody who could live gently in polite society, a gentleman, but one who could also stand up and defend what needed to be defended. That was the whole idea of goodness. When I was at seminary, someone, I can't remember who, said the job of a Christian, especially a Christian leader, especially a Christian man, is to be aware enough of what's happening in the world to recognize where the spiritual battle is fiercest, to stand up, to gather fellow Christians, and go to the center of that battle, to fight on God's side, not by killing people, not with violence, but by standing up, being a person of moral excellence, not fighting with the tools of the enemy. When you're confronted, not being angry, not seeing, not seeing to punish people, not seeing, seeking to humiliate other people or deny them, but rather to be gentle with them and gracious with them, standing up for the truth and goodness without violence, without anger, without all the ugly passions that come with violence and anger. And add to your goodness knowledge. This is the Greek word gnosis. And it doesn't just mean knowledge about. It means active knowledge. The kind of knowledge that you gain by experiencing. It's the knowledge of God and the things of God that you only gain by doing God's business. There's a wonderful quote from Goethe, a, a, a German philosopher. Be bold and mighty forces will come to your aid. If you do anything in God's name, God will be there with you. And in that experience of God being with you, God's power helping you, you will gain knowledge about who God is and what he cares about. And by the way, this is something you will never experience if you don't 
attempt to do something that you can only do if God shows up. If you only do things under your own power, your own steam, with your own skills, you don't need God. God and his power show up in your life and in your prayers and your worship when you are doing things that would overwhelm you without his presence. And to knowledge, self-control. This is the word that means self-mastery, self-restraint, continence. The idea is that you are only free to do God's will, advance God's kingdom, be about God's purpose, if you have freed yourself from other attachments so that you are free and not defined by bad habits or addictions or temptations or desires. Rather, you are defined by God. You fear God. You do not fear any man or anything else in this world. And you are not defined by anything else in this world. And that allows you to act freely according to God's will rather than any other will. and to self-control perseverance. This word means a sort of hopeful waiting, endurance, steadfastness. To be active in God's service, even through doubts, trials, and suffering, because of your confidence in God's ultimate purpose. Eugene Peterson wrote a wonderful book a long obedience in the same direction. Think about that title. A long obedience in the same direction. He's talking about following Christ. He's talking about the journey to God. And it's all about discipleship. In fact, many of the themes I'm talking about came from that book. I highly recommend it. One thing I do recommend, by the way, we're coming up to Easter. Easter is where we celebrate what Christ did in the world. A great way to respond to that would be to buy that book and look at your own life and see how you could grow and follow Peter's advice here, follow Eugene Peterson's advice. A long obedience in the same direction is discipleship, is what it means to be a Christian on a journey with Jesus taking the lead. And to perseverance, godliness. This means, basically, that you're sold out for God. That your life is defined by God and the things of God. That all the, your inner world, your heart, your mind, your soul, are integrated and pointing in the same direction. It is to become whole to become a true, free human being in relationship to your creator. Godliness is to manifest God in the world and to be defined by God rather than other things. To have the habits and practices that God gives us rather than the habits and practices given to us by the world. And to godliness, mutual affection. This is the Greek word Philadelphia. It means brotherly love, 
You all know that. It is learning to love God's people. It is learning to love the church, to love Christian brethren, to make them the key set of relationships in your life. Think about it. If Christianity is true, then the people around you in this room who are Christian are going to be in your life forever, eternal life. Everything that you say and do with other Christians is going to be the beginnings of your eternal relationship. Nothing wasted. Everything beautiful. And that's why it's worth investing time and energy in your relationships with other Christians. By the way, it's taken me, gosh, 30-odd years to learn this, but as some of you know, I've been going away on vacations in February for the last several years, and I've fallen into the habit of visiting churches and hanging out with Christians, which was not an obvious thing for me to do. Uh, I work in the church. Why on earth would I do that? And it's because I've learned that the church is actually my family in other cultures. I can go and I could sit around at a pool and drink Mai Tais with strangers, maybe. By the way, that sounds like hell to me. Uh, I have tried it and it is extremely boring. Or you can visit your Christian family and they can show you their culture and they can show you their world. As you know, I was just in New Zealand. Uh, I only spent six nights in hostels. The rest of the time was with Christians and their families and their churches. They gave me a car on both islands in New Zealand, and everywhere I went, I was welcomed. It was amazing. They did my laundry. They fed me. They gave me cups of coffee in the morning. They introduced me to the best of their cities and their regions. If you had told me that, if you'd met me in my youth, and you had told me that Tony's idea of fun would be to go to church, I would have said, you're a lunatic. And to me, the fact that I do what I do now is the best proof I know that God is real. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are active. It is literally a miracle to me that that's my idea of fun and, and uh, recreation now. And to mutual affection, love. This is the final goal. This is definitely something that I am still working on. By the way, this is strange. I don't know what you will make of this. I was watching this lecture, and it was about how our brains work. And our eyes are each connected to a separate half of our brain. So your right eye is connected to the left side of your brain, and your left eye is connected to your right side of your brain. Your right side of the brain is the logical part of your brain, the analytical, rational part of your brain. The left side is more emotional, more moody, more artistic. It's, uh, yeah, it's emotional. So, <laughs> this is so strange. I realized my whole life, when I talked to people, I looked at the rational eye. I just did. I didn't know I was doing it. It was just my habit. And I've noticed in the last year, I've started to switch the eye that I look at. And this guy explained to me why. I'm now engaging with people, I believe, emotionally. 
I'm dealing with their emotional brains more than I'm dealing with their rational brains. By the way, that's my story. It'd be interesting to see if you agree with that. But where do you look when you look at somebody's face? I've noticed some people scan between the eyes. Some people look at one rather than the other. Well, I'm starting to connect with the emotional side. Let's see if that's true. Love is the final goal, according to Peter. What is love? Well, what I'm about to say is based on C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves. And he points out that in Greek, and the New Testament is written in Greek, there are four different words for love. Storge is affectionate love, especially parents for their children, uh, the love that you have in your family, but also the love that you have for your country, for your political party, for your sports team. Affection, delight. Philia, well, we've seen that one here with Philadelphia. Brotherly love. Lewis says, friendship, brotherly love, is unnecessary. Like philosophy, like art, like the universe itself, for God did not need to create, Philia has no survival value. Rather, it is one of those things which gives value to survival. Our friends are pure gifts. No other agenda. But then there's erotic love, eros. This is the love of romance, of intimacy, or sexual love. Of this, C.S. Lewis says, eros never hesitates to say, better this than parting. Better to be miserable with her than happy without her. Let our hearts break, provided they break together. If the voice within us does not say this, it is not the voice of Eros. Passion for somebody else. The final one is agape, and that's the one that Peter uses right here. Agape love is Christian love, the final goal of discipleship, because it is divine love. Agape is gracious love, unconditional love, endless love, and is the most costly love of all. Lewis again. There is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers 
and permutations of love is hell. Unconditional love, gracious love, is the riskiest love of all because it is unlimited. And therefore, the damage it can do to you is unlimited. And that's the love that the Bible is pointing us to in relationship with Christ. It is the love that he demonstrated. Jesus revealed, remember, he's on his way to the cross. He revealed the cost of unconditional love, unlimited love. It's the reason that Peter confessed him as the Messiah and the disciples followed him. It is the reason that every one of us confronted by the person of Christ and what he has done for us is challenged. Who do you say that I am is not primarily aimed at your head. It is not primarily a rational question. It's a hard question. Do you recognize what Christ did for you personally? Do you see the cost of your redemption? On the cross, do you see the price that he paid for you? Unlimited to the point of destruction and death. That is the essence of agape. One final thought. We're about to go to the table here, the Lord's table. The plural of agape is love feast. You can experience one-on-one agape, but agape together is a love feast. It's the uh, word that the early Christians use when they get together to eat together and begins to describe the Lord's Supper. Initially, the Lord's Supper was probably just a meal. But the love feast became a celebration of Christ on the cross and became the sacrament that we see right here. What does that mean? You are confronted right here with the body and person of Christ. The bread is his body. The cup is his life, his blood, his spirit poured out for you. And so you're confronted right here with a question. Who is Jesus? Do you recognize him as your Lord? Are you following him? Are you on the journey that Peter is describing? Do you see revealed here gracious, unlimited, unconditional love? If you do, this table is set for you this morning. And Christ offers himself to you without limit, without condition, purely, graciously, and freely. And that's why it's a gospel. That's why it's good news. Let's pray. Lord, you reveal the very heart of God. Unconditional, gracious, unlimited love forever. It is so hard for us to understand the reality of such a gift. Lord, we want to believe. We want to have faith. Help our belief. Help our faith. And as we come to your table this morning, Lord, with the bread and the cup, renew our faith. Strengthen our trust. Reveal your love afresh. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.